Welcome to Season 2 of Insurgency Unmasked. Join us as we explore the hidden stories and complexities of the Ukrainian conflict and listen in as we deconstruct the war in Ukraine step by step, expert by expert. Welcome to another episode of Insurgency Unmasked with the Modern Insurgent. So far, we've explored how the history of the region and the shock doctrine and the subsequent Russian economic goals have played a role in the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Today, we are joined by Taras Kuzio, Professor of Political Science at the National University of Kiev Moyla Academy, author of over 20 books, including 2015's Ukraine, Democratization, Corruption and the New Russian Imperialism, and last year's Russian Nationalism and the Russian-Ukraine War. Today, we're going to be looking at the topic of nationalism. From the early ideas of a pan-Russian nation to the destruction of, the, of a Ukrainian national identity during the current invasion and the infamous fascists fighting on both sides of today's conflict. So let's dive in. Taras, how are you today? I'm very good, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. It's an honour to have you on. Um, it, it should be interesting. We're going to be talking about issues which are very difficult i think for many people in britain and in the western world to grasp because um putin lives in uh, russian president putin lives in a i shall we say a late 19th century early 20th century historical time frame that all all of us born in the west have long left in the past mm. So I'm really, really excited to get into today's topic. But first, how did you become a professor? Well, it's kind of a long story a bit. Um, I did all my academic work in Britain um, at uh, uh, Sussex, then London, and then Birmingham. Um, and um, in the second half of the 80s, I was actually a smuggler. Um, and I don't care if British Customs are listening to me because um, it wasn't that kind of smuggling. Um, it was smuggling books, journals, uh, printing presses, fax machines, which were actually very radical when they came out um, in about 87, 88 um, for, for uh, helping opposition and dissident movements. They were the internet of the day, as it were, in the late 80s. Um, and, um, and to opposition groups and in, in Ukraine. And um, this was, this was open, opening up because, of course, Mikhail Gorbachev, the Soviet leader, had unleashed these reforms and so-called perestroika, which in English is rebuilding, glasnost, which is uh, openness. Um, and, um, and so this led to a massive boom in dissident movements, not only in Ukraine, but throughout the region, throughout the former Soviet Union, of course, um, in Eastern Europe, the, the Soviet Empire, and then led to the collapse of the Soviet Union and Soviet, um, Soviet rule in Eastern Europe. So it was a fascinating time to, to, to be involved in that. And at the same time as I was involved in that, that was funding my way through postgraduate work. I was at the School of Slavonic and East European Studies um, in the University of London. I mean, if anybody's been there, you, you'll know it. It's effect, it looks like a George Orwellian 1984 building um, on uh, Senate House, Mallet Street, London. 
Um, and then um, in the 90s, I did my PhD at the University of Birmingham. I've always have worn many hats. Um, so journalism, think tank work and academic work. Um, I think uh, if you're an academic in the political science, international relations field, you can't sit in your ivory tower um, and you need to get out. Um, historians, unfortunately, tend to sit in their ivory towers and sit in archives for years. But I think if you're a political scientist, you need to get into the media, you know, think tank work. Um, you need to get your expertise out to the bigger public, not just to uh, you know, 50 people reading an academic journal. So I want to kind of dive into the idea of the little Russia. Mm -hmm. So someone that has kind of no understanding of Slavic history and the nationalism that has kind of come from that. Mm -hmm. How would you explain the concept of Little Russia, White Russia and Big mm -hmm. Russia? Mm -hmm. I think one of the first things that anybody looking at this should grapple with is not something that complicated, really. It's that identities in every country change. I mean, they're not fixed in stone. Um, you know, um, I grew up, I'm older than you, so I grew up with Arthur Garnet and people like that on TV in the 70s. Um, and some of that TV, when you look back at it now, that, that so-called comedy, you go, oh my God, what the hell was that? Um, and, you know, so what was okay to laugh at in the 1970s is not okay to laugh at today. And British identity has changed. I mean, what you've got today in many Western countries, and that includes partly the Brexit vote, is a nostalgia for a past that is no longer really possible to bring back. Um, and um, you certainly have it in Northern Ireland, which I recently visited actually with some friends. But um, so if you, if you bear in mind that identity is always changing, then the idea that somehow, you know, in the 19th century, uh, there were groups of people who didn't quite know who they were um, and it took time for them to evolve and nation build and become something uh, more identifiable, then that, then that, is, no, that is normality. I mean, it, it happens in, in, in every case. The, the English, the, the way the English identify themselves today is not the way they identified themselves when my father came as a refugee from Ukraine in 1947. It's, it's a very different England. Um, so um, in, the, in, the, in the 19th century, what you had, I mean, and the, the crux, the central crux of this is that um, Russians are very different to, in, in their national development compared to say, West Europeans like the French and the English. The French and the English created their nation states. I mean, I think the probably true to say the English were the first with Elizabeth I um, back in the 17th century. Um, and then they built empires. Uh, in the British case, it was certainly surrounding, you know, Scotland, Wales, uh, Ireland, um, and then further afield. Um, but at the very least, they built a nation state first. And so, um, it's pretty clear to, to everybody in Britain where the borders are between Wales and England and Scotland and, uh, and England. 
we have fought a few wars with the Scots over Berwick on Tweed, but anyway, forget that for the time being. Um, in the Russian case, that's very different. They were never a nation state. They've always been an empire. So the, the, the sort of there isn't a separation between nation state and empire. You know, when the British and French ditched their empires in the 1940s, 50s, um, they could come back to a nation state. They could come back to what is England, Britain, and France. Yes, they were. There is a nuance in the French case, Algeria; in the British case, Ireland, because um, uh, the. Ireland and Algeria were not really regarded by the French and the British as sort of overseas colonies. They were regarded as kind of part of the metropol metropolis. So they're kind of exceptions. But on the whole, you could ditch your overseas empire and you knew where France was and knew where England was. The Russians can't do that. They've always had a problem. You know, if you had a, if I had a room of, of say, 50 Russian students, I guarantee you they would be arguing, arguing amongst themselves, what is Russia? Where is Russia? The Russians even put billboards up in occupied southeastern Ukraine saying Russia's borders never end. You know, um, so there isn't kind of a clear concept. And if you don't have a clear concept of where your borders are, then you don't really have the, the grounding for the, the creation of a civic nation state. Um, because a civic nation state has to have clear borders and then we're all citizens of this civic state. There's no differentiation on, on sort of ethnicity or culture. We're all citizens, as it were. The Russians have never really had that. And so um, at the same time in the 19th century, uh, the Belarusians, less so than the Ukrainians, but the Ukrainians were developing their own national identity. Now, at that stage, um, they were uh, divided between the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Russian Empire. The Russian Empire was quite brutal towards uh, Ukraine identity. Um, the Ukraine language and Ukrainian culture publishing was banned on, on two occasions in the, in, the, in the 19th century by the Russian Empire. That didn't happen to any really any other um, ethnic group. Um, in in Austria-Hungary, -Hung on the other hand, it was the opposite. Um, in fact, the exact 180 degrees opposite. There, the Austro-Hungarian authorities uh, were willing to support, in many ways, the development of a Ukrainian identity. So a kind of a, um, a movement or an evolution from a, a localized identity to um, what they termed the Ukraine identity. And that was because the Austrian, like in every empire, the Austro-Hungarians were playing off groups against each other and they were playing off the Ukrainians against the Poles, against the Polish people. So it was a good way for them to have a kind of a block against the Poles. In the Russian empire, it was very different. It was actually very, very uh, repressive, very attempts to denationalize. Um, why, is that, why was that the case? Um, well, because Russians, um, historically, Russians uh, have always, Russian nationalism, sorry, has always tried to claim um, that um, the medieval state of Kievan Rus, which was a thousand years ago, was the birthplace of Russia. This, of course, is not true historically, because the, the actual word Russia 
only began in 1721 when Peter, Gre Peter the Great created the Russian Empire. But um, they've tried to claim that, um, and the only way they can claim that is by denying Ukrainians an identity. Because Kiev was obviously was in Kiev, um, and um, the the uh, one of the many ironies of this story, and this is why it does become complicated, is that in actual fact, amongst the Eastern Slavs, the three Eastern Slavs, the Ukrainians are the oldest of the three, not the Russians, which is what people tend to think. Um, in 1982, in the Soviet Union. Uh, the authorities uh, uh, commemorated uh, 1,500 years of the city of Kiev. This would make Moscow 600 years younger than, than, than Kiev. Um, but to, um, to accept that would then throw into complete chaos the Russian nationalist position, which is that we have these three Eastern Slavic peoples, they're all really part of one whole, and the Russians are the elder brothers, and everybody should look up to, to, to the Russians, to Moscow. Well, you can't do that if, uh, on the one hand, Kiev says, we're off somewhere else, and secondly, um, uh, the Ukraine's turn around and say, well, actually, we're the ones who should be in charge, not you. So this is where it becomes, as I say, it becomes a bit complicated. Now, so the way Russian nationalists in the particularly in the late 19th century, early 20th century, promoted um, this attempt at uh, denying Ukraine identity was by saying um, that there's something called an, a pan-Russian people or a pan-Russian nation. Um, in, in Russian, it would be Obshiruski um, Narod. And, and this is composed of three groups, Great Russians, the Russians, Little Russians, Ukrainians, and White Russians, Belarusians. Um, they're not really separate people, they're just branches, so it's like the equivalent of Yorkshire, Lancashire, and somewhere else in England as part of an English nation. It does have eerie comparisons, eerie similarities to the Nazis in the 1930s who were talking about a pan-German nation, um, which basically meant everybody who's German-speaking, some kind of connection to Germany should be united into one sort of massive state. Um, so hence the demands to Poland, the demands to Czechoslovakia and elsewhere. Um, and um, and this, this view of a kind of a pan-Russian nation, denial of the existence of Ukrainians, although it germinated in the late 19th century, it continued to exist um, amongst white Russian emigres. And white Russian emigres were the ones who fled the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, primarily to Western Europe, sorry, to Eastern, Eastern and Western Europe. Um, and they maintain this position. Um, and, and so the reason why this, I mean, to me, this is all out of date stuff, but it was all brought back to Russia in the 2000s. Uh, what Vladimir Putin did is he began to uh, organize the exhumation of the remains of white Russian writers, white Russian historians, uh, military generals, and bring them back to Russia where they were reburied with military honors and everything. And their books and 
articles were then republished on a massive scale and distributed among schools, uh, the, the, the army, the security forces amongst political leaders. And so these views began to germinate, not recently, but from about the mid 2000s. So the Orange Revolution was in 2004, it was really from, from then onwards. So these, these views, which are outdated, and they talk of a pan-Russian nation, and they deny the existence of Ukraine and Ukrainians, uh, and believe that anybody who talks about a Ukraine is actually working for some Western conspiracy. This is a conspiracy against Russia. Um, that, that these um, were brought back to Russia and they, they gained ascendancy. And um, in effect, Putin is acting in his invasion on the basis of these late 19th century, early 20th century uh, Tsarist and then, then white Russian emigre uh nationalist myths and um the um what is surprising in the academic world is that this was largely ignored um by many academics i mean i think the the reasons for that are that you've got a lot of russophiles particularly amongst historians of russia um who have kind of it's kind of a, a strange situation where on the one hand, most academics would tend to be liberal or center-left. Um, and then at the same time, they're using this nationalist historiography, which is on the far right. So, and and they don't, in effect, really realize that. I mean, if you point it out to them, they go, what? What do you mean? What do you mean? But yes, um, if you pick up a typical history of Russia in any Western university library, um, it, it will basically follow this kind of Russian nationalist historiography um, and where Ukrainians don't really exist. I mean, so you can't really explain who the hell are these Ukrainians? Are they just squatters on Russian land? I mean, where did they suddenly come from? Uh, did, they, did they come from outer space? I mean, where? where? Um, obviously, that is problematical and it's become now problematical even more with the invasion because um, uh, th this has led to, I think, massive internal debates amongst Russian and um, post-Soviet or, or Eastern European studies that we need to um, change a lot of this. We need to change our approaches because you, um, otherwise you're just going to be espousing the same kind of um, nationalist mythology that's coming out of Moscow and the Kremlin. Um, so yes, to, to, to go to go just to sum it up, we're talking about um, mythologies that would that began in the sort of late 19th century to, to deny Ukraine's a history and identity. They theoretically collapsed in 1917 when the Bolsheviks took power in Russia. But then they continue to exist in the white Russian anti-Bolshevik emigration. And these ideas were brought back to Russia by Vladimir Putin from the mid 2000s onwards. And, um, and he's, uh, he continues to promote these ideas. I mean, he, he began talking about Russians and Ukrainians are one people from about 2008, 2010 onwards. So, uh, 
many people ignored it, um, but um, this hasn't just come from nowhere. It's It's been around for quite a while. And how important has the kind of mythology behind World War II played a role in this as well? Because it links in very closely. Yes, it is. It is because you've got... Um, in effect, what Putin has done inside Russia, he's recreated as best as he can the the Soviet Union that he has nostalgia for, that he grew up with. And, you know, he grew up with the Soviet Union from the 1960s onwards, um, which actually promoted the Great Patriotic War from 1941 to 45, very different from... World War II, 39 to 45, which promoted that as the Soviet Union's main annual commemoration. What, what happened when Leonid Brezhnev became Soviet leader in 64, there was obviously a decision made that most people these days are just paying lip service to the Bolshevik Revolution on the 7th of November. Um, people maybe are just not really as staunchly communist as they used to be. So we need another um, holiday to crown that and they chose the Great Patriotic War um, and so that the 9th of May became more important than the 7th of November and Putin, Putin grew up with that um, and so uh, he, he, has, he has transformed that into a quasi-religious sect um, talking about it all the time um, the, the, the major problem with that is that you then have to rehabilitate Joseph Stalin. Um, and, um, and so, you know, I've joked in, 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 in teaching and in interviews that could you imagine a former Gestapo officer becoming German chancellor and then launching a rehabilitation of Adolf Hitler? Um, you've got a former KGB officer becoming Russian president, launching a rehabilitation of Joseph Stalin. Now, um, to me, and I think to pretty much everybody who is from Central Eastern Europe and the Baltic states, um, there's no difference between Stalin and Hitler. These are both criminals and tyrants who, who both murdered millions of people. In the West, uh, intellectuals have debated the comparisons between Nazism and communism since the 1980s. Um, in, the, in Ukraine, what you had was the opposite of Russia. You had the debunking of Stalin and the, the downgrading of Stalin into a war criminal and tyrant. Um, and this was because Ukraine, Ukraine identity focused on the tragedies of Stalinism, the mass murder the Ukrainian famine, the Holodomor of 1933, which killed 4 million people. Um, in Russia, it was the exact opposite. To promote the Great Patriotic War, you had to also promote Stalin as this great leader um, who defeated the Nazis, built a new Soviet empire, and transformed the USSR into a nuclear superpower. Um, you can't do that and at the same time talk about his mass murders and crimes which of course also killed hundreds of thousands of Russians, not just Ukrainians. So, the, uh, so under Putin, what you've had is um, the downgrading, the minimizing, the denial 
of Stalin as a criminal. Um, so you've had things like the really fantastic NGO Memorial, uh, which collected uh, data on Stalin's crimes since the late 1980s, was closed down a few years ago, was made illegal, um, and, and, and other similar types of groups have been denied the ability. You've had the growth of um, people putting up uh, monuments to Stalin. Um, and um, today's war is depicted in two ways, uh, today's invasion and war, depicted in two ways. On the one hand, it's a kind of a reunification of um, a divided people, the Russian pan-Russian nation, um, which was divided um, through Western conspiracies. And the Western conspiracy here is 1991, the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, Putin is, yes, I know it sounds a long time ago, but 30, more than 30 years on, Vladimir Putin is still very angry that the USSR disintegrated. Um, and he's very nostalgic for it. And he, um, he uh, blames that on, on both Gorbachev, who he, whose funeral he refused to attend, and on, you know, obviously, the typical Western conspirators are CIA and this MI6 and such like. And the second um, um, explanation for the invasion is that Russia is again fighting a second uh, Great Patriotic War. So Great Patriotic War number two against uh, Nazis who control Ukraine. Now... Obviously, this becomes very amusing because the president of Ukraine is Jewish Ukrainian. <laughs> and um, um, his family background in World War II, his entire family was wiped out by the Holocaust. The only reason the president of Ukraine is alive is because his grandfather wasn't at home. He was on the Soviet, in the Soviet army because everybody who was at home was murdered by the Nazis. So to, to, to call um, Ukraine, a country run by Nazis, when the president is Jewish, is obviously bizarre, and Ukraine, Russian leaders have been pulled up on this. Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov answers this question in a very similar manner, by the way, to how the Labour Party in Britain got into trouble. Um, remember Livingston, um, how when he first, the former mayor of London, when he first said, well, the, the Zionists and the Nazis collaborated and, co and cooperated in the 1930s. Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, said exactly the same. What's the big deal? You've got a Jewish president in Ukraine because the Zionists have always traditionally uh, cooperated with the Nazis. So, and there is, by the way, a, a strong link between um, traditional Soviet anti-Semitism, which is camouflage anti-Semitism, Sorry, traditional Soviet anti-Zionism, which is camouflage anti-Semitism, and what we heard on the Jeremy Corbynite wing of the Labour Party. It's the same kind of uh, spin on, on um, Zionists and Jews and how they uh, are operating in big business, money, finance, globalization, and such like, pulling the strings. Um, the... Uh, the this this sort of great patriotic war uh, part two that Russia is allegedly fighting 
is also based on uh, Soviet uh, um, mythology, Soviet propaganda, um, which which has been around for since the fifties, sixties, probably actually since the thirties under Stalin, where this term Nazism or fascist is used in a very broad sense, not in a in the sense we would understand it in the West, although we also have abuse of the term fascist in the West, but it's used in the term of anybody in Ukraine who in the Soviet Union didn't want to be part of the Soviet Union. So didn't want to um, remain for Ukraine to remain in the Soviet Union. So you could be a national communist, a liberal centrist, social democrat, um, a nationalist, and you were all fascists and Nazis because you didn't want to be part of the Soviet Union. Today, that label is applied to anybody who supports a Ukrainian identity over a little Russian identity. So that applies to all, any Ukrainian who supported these revolutions, Orange Revolution, Euromaidan Revolution, 2004, 2014, <coughs> and anybody who supports a Ukrainian identity outside this pan-Russian nation, outside the Russian world, and inside Europe. You're all Nazis. So Zelensky is a Nazi. He's Jewish, but he's a Nazi because he supports Ukraine's membership of NATO and the EU. So obviously, it's a, it's not a political science definition. It's just a, a random definition. So to sum up again, there are two main lines of threads. Um, Putin wants to go into, into Russian history as the reuniter of the pan-Russian nation, of the Russian world. Um, so kind of uh, in Russian history, this was called the gatherer of Russian lands. Um, and secondly, um, he's trying to mobilize Russians by, by focusing on this great patriotic war part two, that they're in Ukraine fighting um, Nazis, hence this term that was used, denazification of Ukraine. But denazification of Ukraine means, um, it's very simple to understand, it's the destruction of Ukrainian identity and its replacement by this little Russian identity, which would be similar to what we have in Belarus under um, Lukashenko, the, the acting president. Um, and it would be like a subservient identity under, under Moscow. So um, of course what's happened and maybe we'll talk about this, is that and the invasion has done the exact opposite. It's emboldened Ukraine identity. It hasn't led, I mean, little Russian identity now is simply out of the question. I mean, I actually tweeted today that pro-Russianism is dead in Ukraine. I did see that, actually. Um, how does that, so that specific case, how does that link to the banning of any pro-Russian parties? Well, the, on the one hand, there was, a, there was a banning, but on the other hand, there, one has to remember that post-2014, when the first invasion happened and when Crimea was occupied and annexed, um, pro-Russian parties collapsed in popularity um, and for a number of reasons. Firstly, because uh, a lot of the traditional pro-Russian voters, about 16%, could no longer vote in Ukrainian elections because they were in occupied territories in the Donbass or in Crimea. 
but more more broadly because of um, it was a reaction against uh, what Russia was doing. So there was uh, very little. Um, so, for example, the next elections after 2014 were local elections 2015 and then presidential and parliamentary elections in 2019. Those pro-Russian forces really got hammered. I mean, they got very little support, um, especially compared to the pre-2014 period. Um, so they were already on the on, on a kind of life support system. Um, and then and then when the war came, um, the 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 main legal arguments for banning them during a state of emergency was that some of their members. Uh, actively collaborated with Russian occupation forces um, in various parts of Ukraine. Now, the, those who were elected um, in 2019, sorry, um, as members of pro-Russian parties like the opposition platform, and they're in the Ukrainian parliament, still remain in the Ukrainian parliament. They haven't been kicked out. Um, but um, those parties on the ground I mean, to be honest, I mean, I doubt whether they'd get any support today. I mean, it was one thing after 2014, but after 2022, with war crimes and destruction of, of um, civilian property, uh, abduction of children, there's simply no way that um, those pro-Russian parties would get any support. Um, one of the major differences between Ukraine and Russia today is just how you how you see Soviet nostalgia is so still so massive in Russia because it's been promoted by Putin. In Ukraine, it's less than five percent have Soviet nostalgia, and by that I mean they want to return to. They either are um, still not very happy at the dissolution of the USSR or would like it to come back. I mean, it's simply that that USSR nostalgia is gone. I saw that the Soviet coat of arms had just started being brought down in Kiev. I think it yesterday. Well, this, this monument, yeah, this monument is pretty incredible. It's it was it must have cost a fortune because it's it's made from titanium, and mm. and it was put up um, between 1980 and 81 when Brezhnev was Soviet leader, and it was put up when he visited Kiev, and of course it was put up as a kind of a mother Ukraine. Uh, defending Kiev against the Nazi hordes, um, and and now it's going to be Mother Mother Ukraine defending Kiev from the Russian hordes, <laughs> and so um, it's a good example of again where when we're looking at uh, you know the whole area of nationalism and national identity, it's a good example of how monuments always in countries are either you know they're pulled down. Um, all their re refocused, um, and this is a monument that's not being pulled down. I mean, it's a massive monument, so it would be a, a major problem to pull it down. Instead, it's been refocused as um, the mother of Ukraine protecting Kiev from the hordes from the east, not the hordes from the west anymore. Um, so yeah, I mean, this you know the whole uh, academic area of monuments and and how we relate to them, you know, I mean, just think of the monuments to slavery that we're debating in Britain um, mm. and in the United States, monuments to the Civil War. I mean, these are ongoing kind of 
issues. With, they're not they're not peculiar only to Ukraine. The modern insurgent is completely independent. If you want to support our work and help boost independent journalism, please consider supporting us via Patreon at Patreon.com/moderninsurgent. Thank you very much. So it's certainly fair to say that the Russian state and Putin have overstated the denazification of Ukraine. But how would you address the the far right that does exist in Ukraine? There are like they may, may be small, but they are contingents of the forces on the front lines that do have rather questionable views. Mm-hmm. How does that line up? Well, it's not really an issue. Um, and the reason why it's not an issue is that um, the, I mean, one way to answer this question would be to say that Ukraine has probably one of the lowest levels of support in the elections for the far right of any country in Europe. Um, uh, I mean, it, which is actually strange because during a war and um, when you have bloodshed, usually support for the nationalist far right goes up. Hmm. Um, and yet the far right in Britain never vote, never got votes either in 2014, local elections 2015, and not in 2019 in parliamentary and presidential elections. In um, if that if that far right kind of um, sentiment was was that deep and widespread then there's simply no way that uh, a Jewish person, Volodymyr Zelensky, would get a a landslide vote in April 2019. Um, Every region of Ukraine, bar one, voted for him. And you didn't hear of any anti-Semitism during the election campaign against against Zelensky. So that's one side of that. Secondly, um, in 2014, there were a number of uh, far-right um, um, volunteer battalions, which were an offshoot of these sort of so-called self-defense forces that were on the Euromaidan revolution, which were the ones you probably would have seen if you'd watch any films, any news programs from the Euromaidan revolution, that they were the ones where they were always fighting with the riot police. Um, so they evolved from self-defense on the Euromaidan to volunteer battalions fighting against Russia. But um, there was a conscious um, decision made by then President Poroshenko in 2015 to integrate all of these uh, volunteer battalions. And, and during the actual 2014 war, there were about 40 to 50 of them, these volunteer battalions. In 2015, they were all integrated into either the National Guard or the Ukrainian military. Um, The one unit that everybody's focused upon, including Western media and and politicians, has has been the so-called Azov. Then it was a battalion, now it's a regiment. Mm. It's actually been renamed. It's now, the I think it's the third assault regiment now. they were they they received a kind of heroic status um, during the siege of uh, Mariupol, the port city in Ukraine, which was destroyed by Russian uh, artillery and bombardment. And they managed to uh, keep the Russian forces at bay until the May of two 
of 2022 uh, by uh, operating in this massive steel plant called Azovstal in Mariupol. So they got a bit of a heroic status from that. But by 2022, they were no longer a volunteer battalion or a separate unit. They were part of the National Guard, and I think they're now part of the Ukrainian military, because they were reconstituted as a fighting force after Mariupol. Many of them were imprisoned and killed and, and such like, so they had to rebuild themselves. Um, and, and therefore, um, in terms of um, any potential... Uh, independent military actor who's from the far right, they don't exist um, anymore. They only existed in 2014 to 2015. They don't, those kind of things don't exist. Um, are there going to be um, far right, people with far right views in the Ukrainian military and National Guard? Of course, there are, there are in every army, in every, every, every security force. Um, but um, but that doesn't really come out um, in the way they operate. Um, for example, um, one of the clear differences in this war is the manner in which Russian prisoners of war are treated by the Ukrainian side, and Russian and Ukrainian prisoners of war are treated by the Ukra by the Russian side. I mean, there's a complete different contrast between how prisoners of war are treated. So, um, you know, there's no sort of Nazis running around and executing Russian prisoners of war. That, that, that's, that's not, not happening. And it's not, it's not um, easy to hide anything, remember, in this war. This is the first war in history where literally everything is on social media. I mean, every day on, on social media, Twitter and elsewhere, you have videos and there's no way that if you were doing those kind of crimes as a sort of a Nazi group against Russian prisoners of war, say, it wouldn't have come out by now. I mean, Amnesty International or Human Rights Watch would have been screaming from the rooftops about it. So, so there's nothing really like that taking place. Um, uh, and um, we shall see in the next elections, whenever they are going to be held, there are rumors maybe next year when they are supposed to be held, but there is a state of emergency. You can't hold elections during a state of emergency, so maybe they will lift it for a week to hold the elections. Um, we'll see if any of these nationalist groups get any electoral support. We simply don't know. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they, if, they, if, if, if they did a bit, but in... In all of the elections held in Ukraine since 1991 to the present, um, the only time a far-right group's gone into the Ukrainian parliament was in 2012. It was the party called Svoboda, Freedom in English, um, and they got 10% of the vote. That was the only time ever. Um, now, one of the bizarre aspects of both 2014 and especially today is that a lot of Russian Nazis are coming to Ukraine to fight. Um, I mean, it's one of the, I mean, and the, the Wagner mercenary group is, is typical of this. Um, when they are captured, the, those Wagner prisoners of war have Nazi tattoos all over their bodies. One reason being is that many of them are ex-criminals and they, and they have those Nazi tattoos from their criminal groups. Um, so it is rather- Even the founder. Sorry, Dimitri, the founder, yes. Dimitri Ukin, a well-known yeah. fascist. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, so you've got Russian Nazis coming to Ukraine to denazify it. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't make this up if you tried, could you? I mean, um, and and they don't seem to think that's unusual because I guess they're not really talking about Nazis. They're talking about de-Ukrainizing Ukraine, not denazifying mm. Ukraine. But there's but this has been going on since uh, in 2014. One of the big Russian groups that came to uh, to fight for Russia was was the um, was called in Russian RNE. Russian National Union. It's a neo-Nazi group. I mean, these guys put up their hands like this. They salute. I mean, they, they're the bona fide real Nazis. Um, they, they were a massive group. They were involved, heavily involved in the 1993 putsch attempt against President Boris Yeltsin. Um, so these groups exist. I mean, what's happened under Putin is that groups which were very marginal in the 1990s under Boris Yeltsin became mainstream and center ground under Putin. Um, and one academics call this a, a red, brown, white alliance. By that she means red being pro, those with pro-Soviet views. So like the communists and Stalinists. The whites are, as we talked about, these supporters of white Russian emigres, um, Russian Orthodox Church, kind of Orthodox, Orthodox ISIS. <laughs> um, and somebody who's famous from that group is called Igor Girkin, who was recently just arrested by Putin um, uh, because he's been criticizing Putin for not being tough enough. And then the brown section are bona fide fascists. So red, white, brown alliance. Um, and these are the, the there. I mean, Ukraine has nothing on that on that part. One, one thing. Um, in Ukraine, you could never have an alliance between the communists and the nationalists because they hate each other in Ukraine. But in Russia, it's a case of um, they're all pro-empire. So the Russian Communist Party, led by Pavel, like, uh, I forget his first name, Zyuganov, um, he's all in favor of this war. Um, um, and again, this goes back to that problem I talked about earlier that um, Russian identity is not confined to um, the nation state, which is the Russian Federation. Russian identity is bigger. And for many Russians, the USSR was Russia. Um, it was the same thing. It wasn't a separate. Um, and it, it makes uh, Russian identity very different to say Yugoslavia, um, where uh, Serbia and Yugoslavia were two separate entities. So in Belgrade, you had um, a Serbian Communist Party, Serbian Communist Youth League, Serbian Academy of Sciences, and Yugoslav ones at the same time. In Moscow, all you had was a Soviet Communist Party, Soviet Communist Youth League, Soviet Academy of Sciences. There was no Russian Communist Party. Ukrainians had all the other republics, 14 republics had their own Communist Party, the Russians did not. So Russian identity is always bigger than the Russian Federation, um, and that creates that kind of desire for a big state, big, big you know, union state, empire, whatever, and brings together the extremes left and right. Because I've, I've even seen uh, on the other side to a smaller um, kind of content, the Russians fighting for Ukraine, both yes. far left and far right. 
with the far right, you've got like the Russian Volunteer Corps, and then well, far- there's a mixture, isn't there? Though, the, yeah, there's two volu- two Russian Volunteer Battalions or whatever they are. Mm. Um, one is um, in that direction, as you say, of, of far right or, or Russian nationalist, um, and the other one is is less so. Um, and um, uh, you do have um, some people on the Russian far right who are anti-Putin um, and they are the ones who I guess saw the light a lot earlier than the Russian nationalists in Russia today and what what I mean by that is that they said many years ago these anti-Putin Russian nationalists this is a this is a, a, a kleptocratic corrupt mafia state um, you know, this is robbing our people. It's putting money ashore, and it is in places in Europe like Britain, you know, Cyprus, France, Monaco, Switzerland, and elsewhere. It's stealing from the Russian people, um, and therefore we should be anti-Putin. Now, Russian nationalists inside Russia are only coming round to that viewpoint now. It's, it's finally getting to them because they can see that the Russian army is in a is in a dire strait. Why? Because everything's been stolen. It's a completely corrupt system. Um, and, you know, for, from the Ukrainian point of view, this is fantastic. Because um, if the Russian army, uh, if Russia wasn't a mafia state, if Russian army was the second best army in the world, as a lot of people thought back in February 2022, Ukraine today would be in dire straits trying to fight it. But because the Russian army is an outgrowth of that mafia state, then the Russian army is a, is a disgrace. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it has massive logistical problems. Uh, the officer corps is just corrupt to the bone and incompetent. Um, and so you have all of these Russians waking up, who are Russian nationalists, waking up and saying, my God, yes. <laughs> um, the reason why we're doing so badly is because of the people in charge. And I think, it, it, you know, it's slowly ticking in that um, that's because Putin. I mean, you know, this is the guy who has been in power 23 years. So ultimately the book stops at him. Um, yeah. But I think it's just, you know, a lot of people in Russia are still afraid to point the finger at Putin. So they blame the Ministry of Defense, Shoigu, or the, the head of the general staff, Gerasimov, but in reality, it's down to Putin, right? Um, mm. And so, uh, so it, it's finally sinking in. But um, um, and by the way, Russia was first called a mafia state in 2010. Uh, anybody can go online and find it. It was in a WikiLeaks, one of those US leaked diplomatic cables, um, and the Guardian and elsewhere published it. So Russia's been called a mafia state since two thousand for 13 years. And what that means, we're looking at a far more corrupt country than just corruption. I mean, corruption exists in most countries in various ways. Um, This is far more deeper. We're talking about where there is no real difference between organized crime and the state. It's it's one and the same thing. Yeah, it's it's fascinating, the links between kind of putin and everything like there's kind of yes. no no stone left unturned with it's his country it, it's yeah. like the old Tsar, where you know the empire was belonged to the Tsar. um mm. 
and, and, and you know, some historians would trace that back to the Mongol in, inheritance, that uh, there's no separation. The kind of thing that, that, that say, England did with um, back in, I don't know, the, 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 when was it, the 12th, the 11th century, where all these rules were introduced between, you know, nobles, aristocracy, the, the monarchy and all of that. Um, that that never happened in in in, in the Tsarist Empire. Never happened. It never happened in the Soviet Union, of course, and it's not happened now. Yes, I mean you are wealthy. You are you have managed to enrich yourselves only because the big boy Putin has allowed you to do that. But in return, you are beholden to him. Hmm. Uh, how does Belarus fit into all of this? Well, Belarus was in the in um, tragically far more Russified than Ukraine ever was, and um, and and hence the emergence of a kind of a strong Belarusian identity was always far much further behind Ukraine, and um, you saw that in the Soviet Union when there were very few Belarusian dissidents in the Soviet Union. Uh, proportionately, Ukraine had probably the biggest dissident movement um, in the in the in the Soviet Gulag. Ukraine, Ukraine Ukrainian political prisoners were proportionally far higher than their numbers in the Soviet population, um, and this was like both uh, sort of liberal democrat dissidents and also nationalists. In Be Belarus, um, had very few dissidents, so there's very little opposition. That's already a sign that um, how Russified uh, Belarus was. Um, in 1991, what's interesting, how the USSR disintegrated, although Putin promotes this idea that there's a kind of a pan-Russian nation, but in reality, they were already very different because only Ukrainians, not Belarusians and Russians, only Ukrainians firstly declared independence and then held a referendum on independence. Which, which got up to 93% of the vote, including Crimea and the Donbass. Um, Belarus declared independence, but was afraid to hold a referendum. Russia didn't declare independence. How could Russia declare independence from the USSR? Um, and of course, Russia never held a referendum. Russia holds its independence day based on the June 1990 declaration of sovereignty of the Russian Soviet Republic. It never declared independence in 1991. So um, Belarus um, was, was um, always a kind of a, a, a backlier to Ukraine and Russia in this kind of, when the USSR disintegrated in 1991. Uh, Lukashenko was um, a nobody really. Um, he managed to get himself elected on a populist um, platform of fighting corruption in 1994. That was the only time he was freely elected. Um, and he has that little Russian, or in this case, white Russian identity, where he um, believes that Belarus should be um, under the Russian elder brother. I mean, what, what are the, the, the four or five areas that define that little Russianism or white Russianism are that Russia is the big boy, Russia is the elder brother. The great patriotic war unites us all. We were all born together in Kiev Rus. We'll always be together in the Russian world. 
um, and the Russian Orthodox Church is, is our spiritual bond, as it were. So all of those things are what Lukashenko believes um, and a kind of a, a, West, a pro-Western alternative to that, which always was strong in Ukraine, was always very weak in Belarus. Um, and so Lukashenko was, you know, um, for many years, I think, quite, quite dominant and popular. I mean, he reflected that kind of Russified, Sovietized Belarusian population. Now, everything changes in 2020 when you have elections in Belarus, because um, you have the rise of both a middle class after, the, after 1991, and you have the rise of a younger generation, which is not pro-Soviet, is not nostalgic for the USSR. And they came out on the streets and protested against blatant election fraud by Lukashenko. Lukashenko was shocked, but then he had to rely on Putin to back him up to suppress those protests very, very brutally. And today, uh, Belarus has um, about 1,500 political prisoners. I mean, this is, you know, ten, hundreds of times more than what existed in the USSR mm. in, in Europe. And this is, exists in Europe. Um, the, uh, it's not surprising those protesters didn't win, um, unlike, say, the Orange Revolution or the Euromaidan Revolution, because um, it's very difficult for a protest movement uh, to be successful when it's facing a dictatorship. In the case of Ukraine, when Ukrainians have done an uprising, say the Orange or Euromaidan revolutions, Ukraine wasn't a dictatorship. There was still, um, there's still a democracy. There was still half of the Ukrainian parliament was op the opposition. There's still a free media. There were oligarchs willing to fund the opposition, etc. In Russia and Belarus, that's very different. You have a dictatorship. And therefore, there's no independent actors to support the opposition, the protesters. So it's a very much different. So uh, Lukashenko, um, going on from there, 2020, Lukashenko manages to stay on, in power and crush the protesters only with the help of Russia, which means that he's beholden to Putin. Um, and, um, and Putin has him by the short and curlies. Uh, I mean, there's... You know, if, if, if there's a military defeat of Russia and Putin goes under, he's thrown out or whatever, he's removed from power, then Lukashenko will go as well. Um, there are two leaders who are totally reliant on Putin staying in power, and that's Lukashenko in Belarus and Kadyrov in Chechnya. Hmm. And... Um, and Lukashenko knows that, that and I think he, 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 that's why he wants, that's why he offered the Wagner forces to come into Belarus, because they can um, um, help to buttress his security forces. Um, I mean, he, there, are, there are many rumors he's ill, Lukashenko, um, and he has no clear successor. I mean, you know, I think it's a bit of a joke if he thinks his son's going to take over. This is not Central Asia. Um, and he's also worried because there are at least two battalions of Belarusian volunteers fighting for Ukraine. And they are battle-hardened, and they have said that in the event of uh, protests in Belarus, they will go back and support the protesters. 
Lukashenko's regime is just held on by a knife edge. Um, it's held on by the Amon riot police and the security service, which is still called the KGB. Um, not by the army. The army is a conscript army. Um, and therefore, um, two battalions of battle-hardened Ukrainian, uh, pro-Ukrainian forces could make a big difference um, in that in the event of sort of protests re-emerging re again. For example, if Lukashenko is stuck in a hospital and he's incapacitated, say, and there's like mm. a, a, a disc, there's a bit of chaos in the political leadership of, of the country. So I, I think that Lukashenko brought those Wagner people in to back him up in case something like that happened. Um, and one final point, a lot of people have, have been talking about um, will there be a, another invasion of Ukraine from the north, from Belarus, and will Belarus participate in that? No, I've never believed that. Um, if Lukashenko agreed to Belarusian armed forces invading Ukraine with Russian forces, it would be a disaster for Lukashenko, because mm. those Belarusian armed forces would either uh, uh, surrender or join the join the opposition battalions. I mean, there's. Firstly, there's no hostility between Belarusians and Ukrainians. There's nothing, there's been, you know, there's no way that they're going to hate Ukrainians to want to come and kill them. And and secondly, these are conscripts. I mean, they're, they're not, why why would they want to die um, fighting, fighting Ukraine? So, I mean, Lukashenko knows this, or, or has obviously been told this uh, by, by his security forces, uh, security services, and hence, he's always turned down Russia's pressure to to use Belarusian armed forces against Ukraine. I was actually in uh, Minsk during the build-up to the 2020 election and then at the start of the riots, and it was a very chaotic time. Well, I, I mean, you could see that they were, um, yeah, they were a bit more, a bit like Ukraine's first revolution. I mean... They, they they needed a bit of training for that kind mm. of protest. And secondly, they because Belarusian nationalism isn't that strong, um, it's more kind of you know street patriotism. Um, they didn't have those battle-hardened young guys like you had in Ukraine who were willing to fight with the riot police. I mean, you know, in Ukraine during the Euromandan revolution, those those young protesters, I mean these guys were willing to die. I mean, hundreds of them died uh, fighting the riot police. And um, they, they, they did, I remember seeing one catapult they built. It was like a medieval catapult that hurled flagstones at the riot police. <laughs> um, I mean, these, you didn't mess with these guys. Um, a lot of them were uh, football fans. They called yeah. ultras. Um, um, and, and by the way, just back on that Azov question, one of the things that's, that often is, is missed when, when we're talking about these nationalist groups in Ukraine is that the stereotype is that it's usually West Ukrainians are the crazy nationalists. But actually, the most nationalistic Ukrainians are East Ukrainians and they're Russian speakers. Um, and that's not that difficult to understand. I mean, for example, Azov. Azov, um, when they were created from football fans from Kharkiv, in Eastern Ukraine, and then they became battalion, then regiment. These are 80, 90% Russian speakers. And that's why if you're a, an anti-Putin Russian, you go and 
volunteered to join Azov because they're all Russian speakers. Um, and it's not that surprising to, because if you're a, a Ukrainian speaker in West Ukraine, nobody's going to punch you in the face for speaking Ukrainian. But if you're in East Ukraine, you might get your face punched in or you might in the past have got your face punched in or, or, or been thrown an insult at you for speaking Ukrainian. So um, that, and I think, you know, historically, usually border regions which are in conflict do does generate, you know, nationalism. I mean, just think of Northern Ireland and just think of uh, uh, in Yugoslavia as well. Yeah, certainly. And then the last kind of big point I want to touch on with regard to Russian nationalism mm -hmm. is the tendency for ethnic minorities to be sent to the front lines. Yeah, yeah. Which has been huge once again. Yeah. Well, um, I, I mean, I think there's both a conscious reason for that deliberate reason by the government to do that rather than sending Russians from wealthy areas like Moscow and St. Petersburg um, because you know if, if lots of people die from Dagestan or Buryatia on the Chinese border that's never going to have ripple effects in Moscow um, but you know if lots of people die from the Moscow region or St. Petersburg region that will I think that there's one that's one reason um, and and so, but the other reason is that these are usually very, from very poor areas, um, and uh, and and so a lot of them join up just to make money or to steal stuff when they're in Ukraine. Um, and um, I can tell you some hilarious stories from my, my visits to Ukraine of these uh, national minorities like Buryats. Um, I was in Bucha in June of last year. Um, where, where the massacres had taken place, the war crimes. And somebody told me that um, during the occupation, one Buryat climbed up a, um, a telegraph pole and other people at the bottom said, what are you doing? Because I want to take this with me, this internet pod modem, so I can have internet in Buryatia. He, he thought just by taking it with him off the telegraph pole, Take it to Buryatia, and then you'd have instant internet. Um, I was just just in June in Kharkiv um, by the Russian border, and another gay another story there of um, of uh, of during the occupation. One um, gay, I forget from which region, poor region of Russia. Uh, two of them were walking down the central road of the village. One had a plasma TV. One had an old Soviet, really heavy, thick. Sort of, you can imagine the old kind of thick, I mean, by thick, I mean wide TVs. Um, and somebody just jokingly said to them, Why are you carrying that plasma? You know, what, why are you taking that? You could, there's, there are no knobs on it, it's not a TV. The big Soviet one, of course, has the old style knobs, you know, the volume and everything else. On the plasma, there is nothing, right? I mean, you need a, you need a remote. And he looked at it and said, you're right. And he threw it in the river. I mean, so you, this, this just explains to you in a very funny way how poverty stricken some of these people are, are from. Um, you know, you got this, Russia is a great power, uh, supposedly great power, um, huge income from 
well, used to be used massive income from oil and gas, diamonds, gold, and yet that never reached all these regions of Russia. And um, uh, what this led to was often these um, soldiers from these poor regions of Russia, or one of the reasons they would rape and loot is their anger, um, because they were told always that these damn Ukrainians, these, you know, these little Russians um, live worse than they do. And then they come to Ukraine and they see that they don't. And that really, really gets their back up because they've been lied to by their own, by their own officers and everybody else. And so you'd have scroll, you know, graffiti on walls saying things like, who gave you the right to live better than us? Um, and, and so they would steal, steal stuff, um, you know, everything. But the point was, well, okay, you've stolen a washing machine, which was like the typical thing you steal. But you've got no running water and no electricity in your village. So how are you going to use this washing machine? <clears throat> and the funniest out was um, in, uh, when they uh, withdrew from the Kiev region in late March, April last year, they brought their looted products to Belarus and they sent this back to Russia through these private Belarusian post offices. Um, and, but they didn't tell them to turn off their CCTV cameras. So these CCTV cameras were filming all of this. They were bringing in all this loot to send. Um, and then they put this on the internet so you could see them, you know, trying sending all. And about half of what they sent back home was stolen by Russian postal, postal workers. So, I, mean, I mean, when I go back to that point, this is a mafia state. It's like, you know, everybody's looking up. He's, he's, he's stealing. I want to get a slice of the action. Um, and, 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 you know, it kind of to me that A, that means this is an army no different to the Soviet army of 1945. This is the Soviet army that looted and raped its way across Eastern Europe in 1944-45. Um, nothing much has changed. It's the same, it's the same, it's the same, same, um, same mentality, same, same thing. You know, everybody tries to screw everybody else. I mean, there's no kind of loyalty. Um, and then this is in turn reflected in the, the terrible logistics system that the Russian army has, where you know equipment that's delivered, there are important parts inside, like the optics and everything have been stolen and put on Russian eBay. So you get 10 tanks, only two work, and, 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 you know, and food that's supposed to be delivered is then stolen, it's then resold back to them. I mean, so, so the, this, um, the national minority question, I think, where it's become interesting besides that factor of how they operated in Ukraine is that um, uh, a topic that I grew up with amongst sort of diaspora um, kind of Ukrainians and other diaspora people, uh, that Russian Federation is an empire, sooner or later it's gonna disintegrate. I, I kept, I've been hearing this for 40 years or longer and until recently, everybody thought, come on, this is not going to happen. This is just, a, you know, nationalist um, wishful thinking. Uh, but if you now do a search on Google 
you will find lots of articles in reputable publications talking about the potential for the Russian Federation to disintegrate in the same way as 1991, the USSR did. So um, it's, it's ironic that a topic that was kind of a marginal, people didn't take it seriously, is now becoming something very serious that people are worried about. Um, and just like in 1991, one of the worries was, what's going to happen to the nuclear weapons? Um, are we going to have a nuclear Yugoslavia? Um, and now, what's going to happen to the nuclear weapons in the Russian Federation if this place all starts you know, going under? I mean, I don't think you're ever going to have a peaceful transition in Russia if Putin goes. It's going to be quite, there's no honor amongst thieves. These guys are not, not going to, you know, not going to peacefully transfer power. I mean, you know, maybe there won't be a complete disintegration, but at the very least, I think what you will have is a return to the 1990s where the Russian Federation was a dysfunctional country. Hmm. Uh, and where, say, you know, lots, lots of regions of Russia refused to take their orders from Moscow. So, um, um, and that, and Putin came into power with the precise objective of re-centralizing re the country because it, it was this dysfunctional kind of federation. So I, I think um, I think uh, we simply don't know what's going to happen if uh, if the Ukrainian counteroffensive is very successful. Putin, I don't see how Putin can remain Russian president, and then that opens up a Pandora's box, including the national minorities, um, who many of them remember are living in areas where there are uh, very wealth, very important uh, minerals like gold, diamond, oil, and gas, and none of the money from that ever remains there. It's just mm. stolen by oligarchs like Abramovich and brought to London and elsewhere. <laughs> all right, and unfortunately, that's all we've got time for today. It's been an honour yeah. to have you on, Taras, and I've really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you. If, if people want to find you on social media, where can they? Uh, Twitter is the best, best place. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I would like to do other ones, but I don't simply have the time. But so Twitter would be my 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 favorite portal call. And what's your at on there? Just my name, just yeah. at Taras Cusio. Perfect. So it's been a pleasure to have you on today. Thank you very much, Taras. Goodbye. Thank you for inviting me. All the best. The Modern Insurgent is your impartial, independent and academic guide in deconstructing the world's conflicts and insurgencies through our unique documentaries, podcasts, reports and scholarly articles. Reporting on the underreported.